You're listening to the City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. Well, good morning. How are we doing? Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. We are very quickly entering into the summer season, which as you know in Texas lasts about 11 months, so that's fun. Uh, with the weather getting hotter, the demand for certain things goes up, right? There are, certain, there are certain commodities that we like a lot more when it becomes summertime. One of those things is the access to a swimming pool. Am I right? Pools are very valuable things. You get a lot more friends during the summertime in Texas if you have a pool. People all of a sudden want to like do life with you, right? Uh, back in 2020, when we were in lockdown, uh, my wife and I were able to get a, a small little above ground pool in our backyard for our kids. And we built a little deck around it and it's been a ton of fun to have uh, when it gets hot out and just kind of send the kids outside and, and uh, they stay uh, cool-ish, you know, in, in the summer. Even pools are not super cool in Texas summer, but they're better. They're survivable at least, which is what we uh, aim for. And so tons of fun, but also a lot of work. If you have a pool, then you know It's a lot of work. Keeping the water clean and clear is a task. When I first got a pool, I thought, as long as I have enough chlorine in the pool, then we're good. Like, that's really all it is, is just add chlorine, you're good. And of course, as time has passed, I've learned that balancing your pool's chemicals involves a lot more. Chlorine is important, certainly, got to have that. It's what kills the algae, keeps it from turning green. But there are other components to the water that are equally important. You need to have the correct pH balance. You need to have the right total alkalinity. If you have low pH, for example, the chlorine won't activate and do its job. If you have high pH, the sun will burn the chlorine up before it gets a chance to work. All three of them are very important for a safe swimming environment. So here's the deal. You can't just look at the water to determine this stuff. Some of you have a pool, you're like, yeah, genius. Yeah, so you can't just look at the water. It might look clear, it might even have a lot of chlorine in it. But if it has, for example, low pH and low alkalinity, it might be clear, but it also will be harmful still to swimmers. A pool that looks clear, has a lot of chlorine, low pH, low alkalinity, is highly acidic, and it can irritate your eyes and even your skin. So you have to test the water in order to know if the water is balanced correctly. Now for our purposes, again, small above ground pool, I just use the small little test strips. I don't have like the chemistry set that some of you people have. Um, It's not complicated in my context. I get the little strips at Home Depot, dip it into the water. It gives me a general reading of the three main things that I need to be concerned with, free chlorine, pH, total alkalinity. I get the reading, I add to the water what it needs to, to keep it balanced, to keep it clean, and it's safe to swim in, and everything is good. But the test is important, isn't it? I got to know what's going on in the water in order to know what I'm dealing with. This morning in our passage in 1 John chapter 4, we're we're met with a sort of test. I've titled the message The Test because that's really what a lot of this passage is about. The first six verses are all about testing various teachers and or preachers that you listen to. So verse 1, John begins, he says, Beloved, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, there it is, to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. I want you to notice a couple things about this verse before we really get into the meat of the passage. First of all, this term test is really the thrust of the passage. It's the command. It's the Greek term 
dokimazo, and it's really actually a, a very fascinating word historically. It's a word that was used to describe the testing of metals in the ancient world to determine whether or not they were pure metal or an alloy. So some metals in the ancient world were alloys. They, had, they were compounds, mixtures of other materials, and this would actually compromise the metal and weaken it. And so if you were a metal worker in the ancient world and you were going to, say, make armor for battle or weapons for war, you would want to test the metal that you were working with first to make sure that the material you were using was pure enough for the purpose that you intended to use it for. You would only want the strongest metals to put armor on someone or weapons in their hands. And so you would have to test it, evaluate it to determine is it really up to the standards I need it to be for the purposes I intend to use it for? Now, in this passage, it's not metals that we are to test, but specifically, he says spirits, the Greek word pneuma, a, a term, very generic term in, in the Greek language that often translates as spirit or breath or wind. Uh, if you are uh, someone with a lot of power tools or particularly pneumatic tools is where we get the word pneumatic from pneuma. Uh, and in this context... Pneuma has to do specifically with the spirit underlying a particular preacher and or teacher. So in John's day, as is the case in ours as well, there were many preachers inside the Christian church who were claiming to be from God. They were claiming that they were speaking and teaching and preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit, but their message was not consistent with God's word. So they were saying they were Christians, they say they're preaching God's word, but then they speak and act in a way that's contradictory to the spirit of God that they say they possess that was underlying their teaching. They were being led by a spirit, just not the spirit. And so John is saying, evaluate them, test them before you receive what they have to say. The question is, how do we do that? How do you test someone that you're listening to? Verses two through six tell us. Verses two through six form kind of a, an outline, if you will. Three ways in which you can test various teachers or preachers to determine whether they're filled with the spirit of God or whether they are counterfeits filled with a counterfeit spirit. Now, let me just say before we dive in that this is a profoundly relevant text for us today. All of the Bible is relevant. I mean, we, we believe that the Bible is living and active, that it, it meets us right where we are, it, it gives us what we need. But I think in this particular instance, this passage in 1 John is likely the most relevant passage we have dealt with thus far. And the reason for that is very simple. Given the advent of social media in our day and age with regard to YouTube and Spotify and Apple Music, you have access to literally thousands of sermons every single week. There are a lot of problems, potentially, that come from accessing various sermons. We don't have time to talk about that, unpack that right now. Uh, maybe a topic for another time. One of the many problems I think that comes from this, though, is that you are far more at risk to hear and be influenced by false teaching today than you were 2,000 years ago in John's context. You have in your phone access this week to more sermons than likely John's audience ever had in the history or the duration of their life. So this is an important text. It greatly matters to us. It's greatly relevant to our particular context here this morning. Every person that you listen to, every person that you turn on and listen to teach or preach the word of God should be evaluated. They should be tested to determine whether or not they're influenced by the spirit of God or the spirit of the world. And by the way, that includes me. 
Just because I'm your pastor doesn't exempt me from this. I should be the primary person that you're testing on a day-to-day and week-to-week basis. Every time I preach up here, you ought to be evaluating with discernment what I'm saying to determine, is this from the Lord? Is this from the Word? Like the Bereans in the book of Acts who searched the Scriptures daily to determine whether they were hearing what was, whether it was true what they were hearing. So let's jump in. Uh, whenever you are listening to a preacher or a teacher, here is the first question that you need to ask is, do they confess the Son? Do they confess the Son of God? Verses two through three. John says, by this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. One of the ways that you can test the spirits is by evaluating what they are saying about Jesus. So I want to give you a truth and we're going to walk through this. This is really important though up front. I want you to just hear this because this is so, so fundamentally important. If we don't get Jesus right, we get everything else wrong. If we don't get Jesus right, we get everything else wrong. What we confess about the Son of God matters tremendously. Whenever you examine the modern Christian so-called cults, uh, the, the theological problems within these religious movements almost always begin with Jesus. They almost always begin with the Son of God. Uh, it's why I believe that Christian cults are not really Christian. For example, there are some denominations with whom I have disagreements theologically. Uh, but they are not issues that I think compromise the gospel in any way. They're just things that I just, I don't see it. I'm not, I'm not convinced by the text. Otherwise, I'd, I'd be a part of that denomination. I'm just, I don't think it's a coherent argument. I disagree with, for example, the doctrines found in some Presbyterian churches or some Pentecostal churches, some Episcopalian churches. I still think all those brothers and sisters are going to be in heaven with us. I have disagreements with them. They're not essential things. They're things that we can agree to disagree on and move along. They're not, they're not essential to the gospel. They don't fundamentally alter the gospel. You can, still be, you can still be saved under these doctrines, in other words. The same cannot be said of some religious movements. I do not believe that you can be saved, for example, under the doctrine of the Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, or Christian science, to name a few. These are groups that have so fundamentally altered the gospel that it's no longer the gospel. And what does Paul say in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8? But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we have preached to you, let him be accursed. That is, by the way, exactly what happens, according to Joseph Smith, with the angel Moroni in the Latter-day Saints. Verse 9, he says, and as we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. In other words, you can't be saved under a gospel that gets Jesus wrong. Because Jesus is fundamental to the gospel. He's fundamental to understanding rightly the gospel. So here's what I want to do in this first point. I want to give you two distinctives concerning Jesus. And this is by no means comprehensive. Uh, The doctrine of Christ Christology is is much more uh, nuanced than this. There's a lot more that we could say. We could spend weeks talking about Christology. But I'll give you two distinctives that are incredibly important for getting Jesus right, for getting his identity correct. Distinctives that will help you determine whether or not you are listening or hearing from a preacher or a teacher that is from the Lord or from somewhere else. Because here's the deal. Most of you know that about Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism. That doesn't shock many of you. You're, you're like, well, yeah, of course, right? I'm not listening to those guys. I'm not reading those books. 
But you are listening, some of you, to other preachers and teachers who are part of just mainline evangelicalism who equally have some deeply problematic views with Jesus. So you need to test them. You need to know these distinctives and run that through your filter as you're listening to everyone. Here they are. Here's the first distinctive, really important one. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Probably the most common error you find in any new religious movement is the denial of the deity of Christ. So again, not to pick on Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, but it's the, they're probably the two larger groups that represent some divergent views about Jesus. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus existed prior to his incarnation, so prior to his, the virgin birth, he existed in the form of the archangel Michael. So he lived as Michael, he took on flesh, he became a human being, he was not God in the flesh, according to Jehovah's Witnesses, he died, he was resurrected spiritually, not bodily, and after his spiritual resurrection, he ascended back into the form of Michael, the archangel, where he now lives as an angelic being. You can go to jw.org and find this in many places. This is not like a secret teaching or veiled in any way. It is crystal clear on the official website of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, you will find in the Latter-day Saints teachings that Jesus is not God in a supreme sense, but that he became a God and a pantheon of gods, and that you, if you follow the teachings of Joseph Smith, can also be like Jesus one day and, and become a God over your own set of planets. Um, you, you can be exactly like the Lord in some distant future. And by the way, Jesus and the Jehovah's Wit or the, the Mormon doctrine is also the spirit brother of Satan. So that's weird. Um, what does the scripture say about Jesus being God? As it turns out, it says a lot. John chapter one, verse one refers to Jesus as the word. And it says in John 1, 1, the word was with God. So some people go, aha, see, he can't be God because he was with God. But if you read literally the next line and it says, and God was the word. Right, that's a little, yeah, a little confused. So he was with God, but he was also God. John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus applies the covenant name of God to himself. If you remember in John 8, 58, he says, before Abraham was, I am. This is the Greek rendering, ego a me, which is uh, literally translated, I myself am, uh, which is really the, the Greek uh, corollary to the Hebrew covenant name of God, Yahweh. Going all the way back to Exodus, when Moses is sent to Pharaoh, remember, to tell them, let my people go. And he says, well, who should I say sent them? And he says, tell them, I am that I am sent them which must have been very confusing for, for Moses. <laughs> I am that I am. So Jesus in John chapter eight, verse 58, he takes this covenant name, the Greek equivalent to it, and he applies it to himself. Before Abraham was, I am. Now you might argue that, well, he didn't really mean the covenant name of God, but his audience sure interpreted it that way because they immediately picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy, for making himself equal with God. Hebrews 1.8 refers to Jesus as God. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Hebrews 1.3 says, He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe, Hebrews says, by his words. That's how powerful he is. Isaiah 9.6 prophesies that Jesus would be called mighty God. 
Jesus says in Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and was and is to come, a description in the Old Testament only fit for God to have. All throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see Jesus doing things that only God can do and saying things only God can say. Even here in 1 John, we've learned over and over again, week by week, that if you want to live a righteous life, you do so through obedience to the commandments of who? Christ. Now, commandments are only something that God can give. And yet we see Jesus saying, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. This is how the world will know that you are mine, by your love for one another. John is going to go on in chapter 5, we'll get to this here in a few weeks, where he says that Jesus is the true God and the eternal life. Listen, you have to want Jesus to not be God. You have to ignore so much scripture in order to come away with any other conclusion than that that Jesus is God in the flesh. Anyone, here's what it means, anyone then who confesses Jesus Christ, who teaches about Jesus Christ, Jesus is Lord, you ought to follow Jesus, you ought to believe in Jesus, you ought to follow the teachings of Jesus, but then they come back and they deny that he is not really God, they're not confessing Jesus. They're confessing a Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of scripture. So understand, this distinctive is so important, Jesus is God. Here's the second distinctive, and this is where it gets a little bit confusing, I think, for folks. Jesus is human. So when you read the Gospels, you see aspects of the humanity of Jesus very clearly, don't you? For example, he's born. And that's a pretty good indicator that he's a human being. He has a body, a human body. He gets hungry, and he eats. He gets thirsty, and he drinks. He sleeps. He takes naps. By the way, one of the most Christ-like things you can do is take a nap. Well, just be like Jesus, take a nap, a good godly nap. Don't let anyone deceive you. Jesus is God. He is also human. He does human things often because he's human. Now, this is confusing, isn't it? How can Jesus be both God and also human? That's confusing. Paul calls it a mystery. The Apostle Paul, he says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It's mysterious. It doesn't make any sense. Jesus, the son of God, the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells, is also a human being. He talks about being the son of God. He prays to God who is in heaven. He says things like, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's John 5.30. And again, in the primary text that we're dealing with here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, John seems to be more interested in the way in which we confess Jesus as human over and above God. He's already, the, the, the fact that Jesus is God is not even controversial for John, but it's that he came in the flesh that matters in John's context more because already in John's day, there was a heresy that had developed in the church that eventually becomes known as Gnosticism that denies the, the bodily uh, embodiment of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus. They would say that, yeah, he, he died, he, he was resurrected, but he came back as a ghost, as a phantom. He wasn't really bodily resurrected because he wasn't really human, right? This issue of humanity is one that created a lot of discussion and debate within the early church. So let's do a little bit of church history for a moment. You're like, yay. <laughs> right. 
So there were certain theologians in the early church just after the first and second centuries that argued that Jesus, because he was limited in certain capacities or underwent states of change, was human and was not God. So because he experienced things like hunger and fatigue, because he slept and ate and drank, these things disqualified him from being God. This is known as the doctrine of divine impassibility. Not impossibility, impassibility. The doctrine of impassibility states, rightly, I believe, it's a good doctrine, that God can undergo no change. So in James chapter one, verse 17, uh, James talks about God in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? We believe this stuff. I mean, this is true. The divine impassibility is a real thing. God is impassable. Because of this, then that means that things like hunger and sleep are things that God cannot experience because these things require a state of change. So, for example, to be hungry requires one to undergo a state of change from being full to now hungry. I need more food. I need to eat. Amen? Praise God. Yeah. Um, Sleep requires one to undergo a state of change. I have lots of energy. I'm now depleted of energy. I need to sleep so that I might have more energy. There's a, a state of change that takes place. So certain theologians reason that Jesus can't be God because Jesus undergoes states of change regularly throughout the Gospels, and God can't undergo states of change. Ergo, God can't be Jesus, and Jesus can't be God. But Scripture says something different. Scripture defines the identity of Jesus as both human and also divine, and it doesn't use reason or philosophy to accomplish this. It just states them as facts because that's what the truth is. Jesus is both of them. It is true that he is both God and both human at the same time. So it was a man named Cyril of Alexandria who coined a very important phrase within the world of theology that we still use today called the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. And what he says is that, that in other words, Jesus has a divine mind, but he also has a human mind. He has a divine nature. We would all agree that the nature of God is is over and above different than human nature. So we would say that Jesus has a divine nature, but he also has a human nature at the same time. He is a divine being, but he's also a human being. And, And they are both not only equally true, but they are in union together in the person of Jesus Christ, fully together in union in the, in, in the Savior. Now, why does this stuff matter? Some of you are like, why are we doing seminary right now? Why does theology matter? Why am I talking about divine impassibility? Why do we need to know about the hypostatic union? It matters because the way that we think about and talk about Jesus matters. That's what John is getting at here. The way we speak about Jesus matters. The way in which we confess the Son matters. Let me give you an example of why this matters, why this is so relevant for us today. You will hear this phrase very often in the church, and for what it's worth, up front, let me just say, I agree with it, all right? So if if you're someone who said this before, I'm not picking on you. I'm not in disagreement with this statement. There's a very common phrase in evangelicalism that says this, Christianity is not about a religion, it's about a relationship. It's honestly a good sentiment behind this statement. Christianity is about a relationship, it's about knowing Jesus. Jesus says, you don't need to know everything, you just need to know me. It's It's a relationship, right? A relationship with Jesus. But consider this question for a moment. 
What is a relationship? What is a relationship? A relationship, at least in the human sense, is, is the connection between two people, the way in which two people are connected together. And understand this, that the depth of that connection will determine the depth of the intimacy shared in that relationship. So for, for me, uh, for example, I enjoy several relationships in my life. Some are more intimate and prioritized than others. So the, the highest and most prioritized relationship in my, at least in, in, in the earth, is my wife, Jessica. Most important relationship that I'm in. I know things about my wife that no one else knows. She knows things about me that no one else knows. Our specific knowledge of one another is directly correlated to the intimacy that we share in our relationship. They build off of one another. The more intimate we are, the more we know about one another. The more we know about one another, the more intimate we are. And it's just sort of the cycle that continues. It's how God designs relationships to work. And it's unlike any other relationship that I'm in. Numero uno. But consider for a moment, if you asked me, hey, uh, describe Jessica. You know, what, what's so special about her? If I gave you this just like generic, bland answer, what would that say about the depth of intimacy that I share with her? Like if you were like, hey, uh, tell us, what makes your wife so special? And I was like, well, she's the most important person in my life. And we have this amazing relationship together. And you're like, oh, well, okay, well, that's wonderful, but, but what makes her so special to you? And I was like, oh, well, um, she's a woman, <laughs> and uh, she has hair. She lives in the same house as me. And, oh, and um, she has a purse. Yeah, we're very close. Like, I, I need marriage counseling at that point, right? And I fully struck out, swung and missed, big time. That would reveal problems within within my home and within this relationship. My ability, in other words, to accurately talk about her in a meaningful way is dependent on how intimately connected I am with her. A generic answer would reveal, at best, a shallow relationship and, at worst, no relationship at all. One of my great fears, if I'm just being honest with you, as your pastor, is that you think that you're in a relationship with Jesus despite the fact that you know little to nothing about him. That you will emphasize a relationship over religion but never make any effort to pour into that relationship. How he's revealed himself in scripture, for example. What he's like. What he's not like. What he prefers. What he commands us not to do. Theology matters to us as Christians. Theology is simply the way in which we talk about the God with whom we are intimately connected. The more I grow in my understanding of who Jesus is, how he's revealed himself to me, his heart for me, his desires for me, how he, how he has made himself known in the world, the more intimate my relationship with him is. Relationships are built on knowledge of one another. The more I know, the more connected. The more connected, the more I know, which means how well you are able to talk about Jesus in some way correlates to how well you know him. If you can't really talk about Jesus in a biblical or accurate manner, how can you claim to be in a relationship with him? If you get all of it wrong, if you don't know what he's commanded you, how can you, how can you ever walk in obedience to what he's commanded? Let me ask this, what would your description of Jesus reveal about your relationship with him? Now, do you need to know the name Cyril of Alexandria or his principal opponent, Nestorius? Do you need to know the Council of Chalcedon or the hypostatic union? 
I mean, if you want to be a nerd like me and have discussions about it, maybe. But no, you don't need to know those things. What you do need to know is that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. He's not 50% God, 50% man. He's not Hercules in the Christian world. He's not a demigod. He's 100% God. He's 100% man. He possesses both the mind and nature of God and the mind and nature of man. Now, can we fully wrap our minds around this? No. That's why Paul says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. It's a mystery to us to some extent. But when you're listening to a teacher or preacher of the word of God, the first question you always ask is, do they confess the son of God? Do they get Jesus right? Because if we get Jesus wrong, Nothing else matters. Here's the second question that you can ask. Do they possess the spirit of God? Do they possess the spirit of God? Look at verse four. He says, little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now we talked about the spirit pretty in depth last week, so I'm not gonna belabor this, but if you weren't here, then go back and listen to that. It was an important message in the scope of 1 John, but, but what John is saying here is that the spirit that indwells all Christians not only serves as the ultimate form of confidence that you've been born again, like we talked about last week, but he says in this passage that he is greater than those who are in the world who take issue with Jesus and his kingdom. So when we think about the spirit, usually we go in one of two ways. When I say the Holy Spirit, you either think of two, one of two things, either the fruit of the spirit or the spiritual gifts. That's typically... There may be some weirdos in the room who think of something else, but like that's usually where we end up in one of those two places. And certainly uh, the spiritual gifts are a part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Certainly the fruit of the Spirit, important to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But overwhelmingly, if you want to know what the mission of the Spirit of God is, the one singular, if you had to condense it down and just kind of overgeneralize, oversimplify the role of the Holy Spirit in the world today in the lives of Christians, here it is. It is to give power to be a witness to Jesus. That's it. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says, But you're going to receive the Holy Spirit and you're going to have confidence. You're going to feel like a really, really strong person. No, he says, You will receive power. When you receive the Holy Spirit, when he has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And actually, if you look at the book of Acts, the outline of Acts follows this exact passage. It begins in Jerusalem, it moves to Judea, it moves to Samaria, and the latter half of it is dealt or dealing with the uttermost parts of the world, the, the missionary journeys of Paul and the different churches that he plants. It follows this pattern that Jesus gives here that when the Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power to be my witness. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the advocate, the one who will advocate on your behalf. He calls him the helper who will help you, specifically the one who reminds you of Jesus' words and empowers us to speak, to testify to the truthfulness of the gospel. That means that when God puts people in your life to share Jesus with other people and you need to speak truth to them, that in that moment you don't do so in your own power, but you do so through the power of the Holy Spirit. So here's what it means in our context of testing preachers and teachers. It means that if you are listening to a preacher or teacher who truly possesses the spirit, they will not only confess the son of God, but they will do so unapologetically, even in the face of hostility from the world around them. It means practically, if your favorite teacher or preacher is always sort of changing their tune, if they're always trying to appease the masses, kind of water down whatever it is they're saying to make it feel as little offensive as possible, because we want to reach, you know, we want to be loving and we want to be kind and we want as many people packed in here as possible so that they can think we're really great. 
in order to avoid scrutiny. They're not being led by the Spirit, if that's what's going on. They're actually being led by demons. Now, let me just say, I realize that makes me sound a little fundamental. Um, it's the only two options that the Scripture presents us. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. He is saying teachers of the Bible, people who claim to come in the name of God and proclaim truth to you, they are either being influenced by the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Satan. There's no in-betweens. There's no neutral ground. There's no third choice. It's one or the other. So you can tell in part what spirit is influencing those you are listening to by how they handle hostility? Do they buckle under pressure? Do they backpedal? Do they retreat? Do they compromise the scripture? Jesus says, or John says, test them. Evaluate. Do they confess the son of God? Do they get Jesus right? Do they possess the spirit? Do they do so unwaveringly? And third, last, do they profess the truth of God? And this continues to sort of build. You'll notice one point sort of builds off of the other. Look at verses five and six. John says, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And by this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. He's saying, you will know whether or not a preacher is being led by the spirit by who is listening to him. If he's popular with the world, if the world is listening to him and applauding him, oh, we can get on board with this kind of Christianity. Yeah, he's so affirming. He's so inclusive. He, he doesn't add sin. He never even talks about sin at all. He's not being led by the Spirit. It sounds harsh, but look at what John is saying. People in the world listen to who? Those who are from the world. And the people from God listen to those who speak from God. You can test them by examining who their biggest fans are. Can I just be real personal with you for a moment as your pastor? When I, when I began this role as senior pastor here, I, I had these pastoral pillars of leadership that I've, I've, I've tried to think through and kind of funnel my decisions through on a day-to-day -day basis. One of them I've been saying since the very beginning, since the very first uh, leadership meeting that we had, I talked through some of these, and, and this is one of the first ones I ever talked about, and that is this, that I will never try to convince anyone to join this church. I'm committed to that. It's one of my pastoral pillars of leadership. I will extend the invitation. Uh, certainly will ask you to consider joining the church. I hope that you'll join the church. If you're new here, this is your first time here, you're, you're kind of in the market for a new church, please, by all means, continue to come. Go to the discovery class, learn about who we are. I hope that you will join. I, I love this church. I believe in this church, not just because I'm the pastor here, but because I'm a recipient of the ministry as well. I got saved in this church years ago. I love this place. I believe in the mission here. I believe it's compelling. I believe it is needed in the world today. I believe that what we do matters because it's built on the truth of God's word. We believe in the scripture. We believe that it is the infallible word of God, without error, perfect foundation for every believer to, to stand on. So I will certainly invite you to join this church, but listen to me, because it's so important. I will never try to convince you to join. I will not give you a four-point sales pitch or hound after you or debate you or try to appease you or accommodate things that you don't really like about what we're doing here. If I have to convince you to join this church, here's what's gonna happen down the line. I'm gonna have to convince you to stay at some point as well. 
because I'm going to say something or do something that's going to make you mad. It's going to hurt your feelings. And I'm just not interested in that kind of cat and mouse game. It's not my objective here as your pastor. My objective is not to convince as many people as I can to join City on a Hill. I'm not a salesman. My goal is not to fill the seats here. I hope we'll grow. I pray for growth daily. I want to be prepared for growth, and it seems like God is growing us. And so we want to have a plan. We want to be stewards of what God is giving us. But understand this. I cannot cause growth here. Only the Lord can do that. It's not my objective. You want to know what my objective is as the pastor of this church? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Verse two, here it is. This is my pastoral objective. Keruxon ton logon. Preach the word. That's the command. That's the objective. That's it. I'm not called by God to be a visionary. I'm not called by God to be an administrative guru or a life coach or a counselor. I was called by God to preach the word. And Paul continues, he says, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now why is that my pastoral objective? Why does Paul say this? Verse three tells us, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I believe that time is now. I believe we're living in a time where people will turn away from the truth, where they will wander off into fairy tales, where they will find people that will speak to the things that they think matter the most and will, will kind of meet their needs and whatever it is or affirm whatever it is that they think is important. And what does Paul say to do? Reason with them? Reconsider your standards? Move the goalposts? Have a debate? No. He says, preach the word. Keep professing the truth of God. Here's why. John tells us why. Because whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And by this, we know the spirit of truth from the spirit of error. Is your pastor, it's not that I don't want to convince you of the truth of God's word. It's that I can't. I'm not able to do that. I'm not able to convince you to believe the truth of God's word. What I can do is preach the truth of God's word and allow the spirit to do his work in whom he chooses. And to do so in the fruit of the spirit with the heart of Jesus towards the hurting and the lost. And and, and the truth will either be received by those who are from God or it will be rejected from those who walk away from what it is that we have to say. That's how you know. That's how you know. You evaluate it. You test it. Anytime you are listening to anyone who proclaims to know Jesus and to say his words from Scripture, you ask, do they confess him rightly? Do they get Jesus right? Do they possess his spirit? Are they unwavering in their convictions? Do they give grace to the broken? Are they merciful? Do they have the fruit of the Spirit? Are they gentle? Are they patient? And do they profess the truth of God unwaveringly, regardless of the changing tides of culture? If not, if the answer to any one of those questions is no, they're not from God. They're from the bad guy. And you ought not to listen to them anymore. 
because they are liars, they are deceivers. We who are from the Lord listen to those who speak from the Lord and we can identify it by this right here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for such a straightforward way of identifying the right kind of teachers and preachers that you call, that you equip, that you raise up. Lord, it's so easy to be deceived. It's so easy to to, to listen to someone who uses the right words, the catchphrases, but has doctrine that is twisted. So help us, God, with discernment. Help us know We're not going to agree with everything every person says, and that's okay. We cannot compromise these things, the identity of the Son, the working of the Spirit, the profession of your truth. Help us be vigilant and on the lookout and committed to these things. For those this morning, God, who, who don't know your son, who, who, who are new to this, who maybe have never been born again, God, I pray that <clears throat> the Spirit's work would be evident to them and that you would lead them to a point of repentance and, and belief. Jesus is our only hope, God. That's our confession. He's our only need. He fulfills all, everything that we need in this life and in eternity to come. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.